Welcome back to Radio Juxtapose. My name is Doug Gillen. Coming up on today's episode, Evan Preco and David Shrigley sit down to talk about David's latest project, all about books. I'm not going to say too much more. It's all covered in the conversation. Enjoy the episode. Are you having tea or coffee? What is it right now? I'm having peppermint tea, which is a little bit, uh, it's not very English, but um, I've become lactose intolerant weirdly in my old age so i can't have milk well i don't really like milk anymore so yeah it's all black tea and black coffee well i never thought we would speak again because you know sometimes these interviews become fleeting but here we are again yeah Um, here we are Okay, the project's amazing, but I want you, for the people who are listening to this, this will be the first time they've heard about what this is. It's called Pulp Fiction. It revolves around Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, George Orwell, 1984, two wildly popular novels for completely different reasons. One with a film starring Tom Hanks, the other had a film, but it wasn't starring Tom Hanks. Anthony Hopkins and John Hurt. That's who it was. I was trying to think about that just as you came on. What is Pulp Fiction? Please explain. Pulp Fiction, um, very briefly, there was a news article in, I think, 2017, where there was a like a, a charity shop, a thrift store called Oxfam, which is a big, big charity based in the UK. They have a bookstore in, in Swansea in South Wales, and they went viral with this news story where they had so many copies of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code that they couldn't sell them anymore. So they they made a little display in their shop saying, yeah, you could give us more of these, but we really can't sell them. So please give us your unused vinyl instead or some different books. I clocked this and I thought, I need those books because nobody else wants them. So I'm going to have them. and And I don't really know why. I'll figure out what to do with them because I'm an artist, right? And that's right. what artists they they solve problems like that. Um, so yeah, fast forward a few years, I start collecting them from 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 charity stores. Can I ask one quick question? Because Dan Brown was popular for two novels, of course, Da Vinci Code being more popular. Did they, did you also collect Angels and Demons as well? No, no, okay. just the Da Vinci Code. Um, okay. The Da Vinci Code, as far as I'm aware, vastly outsold all. Other, well, many yes. many other. As well as his other, his other books, right? Um, okay. Twenty years ago, it was published, and it sold, getting on for ninety million paperback copies. So yeah, extraordinary uh, publishing phenomenon. But yeah, it creates this problem of these unwanted books, and there's something quite sad about an unwanted book. We're primed to think that, or at least I am, anyway, that you shouldn't throw a book in the recycling, right? You shouldn't, right. shouldn't discard it. You should give it away. Hence. The, the the bookstore, the charity bookstore becomes the repository of these things. Anyway, a few years later, uh, I think about 2020, maybe during lockdown, I reread 1984, George Orwell's book, which has, it's a book that sort of has a, an ever darker resonance in every generation. Yes. It's been, and it's, you can apply it, you know, it, seem, it seems even more relevant now to when I first read it, which would have been, I guess, still in the Soviet era when I was much younger. I think I, maybe I was just still a student. I can't remember. But anyway, I reread it for some reason and um, enjoyed it anew and realized that it was now, as of the 20, as of January the 1st, 2021, it, all his works are in the public domain because it's more than 70 years since his passing. Right, right. So I was like, yes, I can publish 1984, and I know now what I'm going to do with all those copies of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, um, and, you know, this was 2021. 
And I'd already started the project and it turned out the easiest part of the project was to acquire the paperback books, which it turns out you can, we got them all for nothing uh, because there are book depositories whose job it is to collect up all the unwanted books from charity stores and so on and recycle them, basically. So they had myriad copies of these this this book amongst others as you can imagine so they gave us them all and then we we decided we wanted to make paper so we had to locate a paper mill that would do this which was far from easy there's only one place as it turns out in the uk that can do this to basically re repulp the paper yeah repulp right. the paper on it was pulped in the first place i don't i don't right. think it's re paper in the first it's just place. recycled yeah they made this paper uh, after lots of difficulties, their their um, their factory actually burned down at one point during the project. It was very badly damaged. Fortunately, our paper wasn't damaged. We were lucky in that respect. But this paper has a kind of uh, has the residue of the original text in it, so you can see little fragments of letters. It's like um, yeah, it's not a palimpsest, but it it's like a you know a mixture that still contains the the, the original. Bits of the original text are still visible in the paper. So it's quite a, it's quite a beautiful thing. We got a book designer involved in London, a guy called Fraser Muggeridge, and he said, "Do you know? I think my grandfather proofread the original 1984." And I was like, "What? Really?" You, so his grandfather was this guy called Malcolm Muggeridge, who was quite a, a very well known broadcaster, journalist, writer, intellectual. So he proofread this actual book. So I was like, "Wow, that's amazing." And then we had to have it proofread again when we made this new edition. So his sister is also does proofreading. So there was a really interesting circularity there. In the course of doing it, well, we because Fraser was designing it, he he suggested that we make a hardback copy of it because the difficulty in making the book out of recycled material is how do you make the cover out of recycled material? Because it's all right. very well making the right. cover is a different weight of board, and you can't make that out of the recycled paper so we found there was a copy of there was an edition of um a hardback da vinci code which is the special edition there's some sort of lavish illustrations and stuff i'm sorry if i'm laughing but it's just the idea of a lavishly designed illustrated da vinci code is just perfect well i guess they they cashed in on it you know the publishers yeah, of course of course yeah. and um, this thing exists and we were like wow we've got to get all those but that turned out was really quite difficult they weren't going to give us copies of that so we had to buy them all one by one from ebay um which took the best part of a year to acquire all these at quite significant expense and we eventually did it it came with a dust jacket as well so we took off the dust jacket and printed on the inside of the dust jacket, the new cover for 1984, which I designed, um, and then embossed the hard cover with a an image of a rat, which became the the motif, our motif for 1984. It previously often having been an eye, the eye of the watching eye of Big Brother, and it meant that we uh, using a cover, it meant that we could make the edition out of almost all recycled Da Vinci Code material so the only thing that isn't recycled is is the spine the tape on the spine um so that was really yeah it's quite an exciting thing and it's quite a, a lavish and beautiful thing and i made an artwork to go in it i made a uh, a little print that is based on the ideas of 1984 
Yeah, because I didn't really do a lot of artwork for it. There's only the picture of the rat and the text on the front, and that's it, really. And obviously, I'm a graphic artist, or best known as a graphic artist. And people said, when I described the project, are you going to illustrate it? And I said, well, it doesn't really need illustrating, does it? It's a novel. It doesn't need my intervention, necessarily. Um, the the intervention that I've made, or the decision that I've made is is enough. Anyway, I've done this little print that's sort of inspired by the ideas contained in 1984 and that allows us to sell the book for a price where we can actually recoup the giant amount of money that i've spent making the book you weren't on a timetable for this though this was not like a deadline project this was just something that you could kind of work on as it because 1984 is always relevant it is yeah as you say it's um you know you don't have to think that hard about the themes of 1984 a big brother for example you can relate that to the surveillance capitalism that we're all subject to whether we like it or not or via our devices um and it's not exactly a quantum leap to to go between that and you know the surveillance of winston smith in in big in um in 1984 and like i say there's lots of elements of it like the subversion of language for example if you think about it there are so many aspects of the english language that have been changed for political purposes like um you know genocide becoming ethnic cleansing a particularly stark example of that um, remember margaret atwood when she was interviewed as you know the handmaid's tale another right. more, more recent dystopian yeah fiction exactly or speculative fiction she said about the handmaid's tale that there were no there was not very little fiction in it in terms of the actual conceit of the ideas mm-hmm. uh, that the the dark phenomenon that have that happened in it, the um, the diminishment of women's rights, of uh, the civil rights of everybody in society, but particularly women. And she was basing that on things that are actually happening in the United States in the early 1980s, which still are happening now. And it's the same with 1984. As I say, there's, you know, maybe not all of those phenomena are present in American society or UK society, but you can find them all in other parts of the world and, and a great many in our own society. So I think Orwell Orwell's message at the time was that this is a warning. It was seen very much as a as a kind of warning against communism. It was actually, I think the first film of it was funded by the CIA because they saw it as a really useful propaganda tool in the fight against communism. But in reality, what Orwell was saying was that it doesn't matter what ideological starting point you have, it's the absence of democracy or the move away from democracy to a totalitarian society that this is a warning against, you know. I, at the moment, ironically, I'm reading a book about utopian literature and utopian communities in the UK and United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and how utopian fiction was so popular with people. And then World War One happened and everything changed, the way that people wanted to buy utopian fiction, and it became like it started becoming more dystopian in terms of like what was selling uh brave new world obviously and then you know 20 years later 24 years later it's uh um maybe a little bit longer it was 1984 comes out and i was just thinking about like you know 1984 is is can apply through so many different decades but i i'm curious like what is it that you in reading it during the pandemic did you relearn about the book well i think it's just sort of sparked my interest in the book i think it's a it's it's a book that as a piece of prose isn't spectacular it's good enough to carry the story as very much a concept novel the right. idea the ideas are more important than 
the way those ideas are articulated. So in that sense, it's sort of a bit like Alex Haley's Roots, which again is a book that sort of as a you know as prose, it, it's not spectacular, but as a, a historical document or a fictionalized historical document, it's incredibly powerful, an incredibly important book, an important educational book for you know for me to read at the time I read it. So it's like that in some ways, in that the ideas are very very powerful, but the actual writing itself is is simply good enough to carry that um i think what's was really interesting i mean it made me delve back into as you've read about sort of that era or the things leading up to how that book was written and orwell being having um, participated in the spanish civil war and the legacy of world war one and then him being a communist and then becoming disillusioned with communism and then the, obviously the Second World War, the Nazis, and his experiences. And also, you know, his the literary scene that he was part of in the early part of the 20th century, time leading up to 1950 when he died and when 1984 was published. You know, he was, well, he wasn't a contemporary, but he was in the same literary circle as H.G. Wells. Yeah. You're talking about utopian fiction. And also other writers like Joseph Conrad, for example. It's really interesting to think that all those people were in London at that time, and all corresponding and all talking about, you know, writing. Um, so yeah, there was that it's interesting to think about that transition from utopian to dystopian fiction and why that happened. You know, you could see Animal Farm is the book about the revolution and you know, the failure of the revolution. And then maybe 1984 is about the, the consequences of that. I've probably read 1984 about 20 times. I used to read it every year um, up until probably not just the pandemic. I probably, I probably haven't read it since then. And it, I, what I liked about reading it is that it reminds me of being a young man and my first sort of awareness of certain political implications that would happen if certain governments or certain uh, movements would would come to fruition. So I always think of it as like a, uh, a rekindling my youth in a way when I read it. Does it rekindle anything for you? Then I have to ask about Da Vinci Code after this. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those books where you realize, I mean, I, I certainly haven't read it 20 times. I've read it twice, I think, or maybe okay. three times. Okay. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm 55, so I read it you know, when I was 20 and I read it again when I was 50, you know. Yeah, it's a good gap. So, yes, there was enough time yeah. to re-read it, re it at that point. But yeah, as you say, it's sort of like you, um, you know, you, you, you think about the political circumstances of things happening. Like in 1984, when they, you know, make that film with John Hurt, I think it's Anthony Hopkins. I think Anthony Hopkins is Big Brother and John Hurt is, mm. with, you sort of see that as some, warning against at that time you see that as some kind of warning against something that was already happening in another part of the world which was true because it was you know in soviet russia communist china was not they were not nice places to be a citizen you know now we sort of see it as a you know it's very much easier to to, to think back in history and think that you know the nazis came to power with you know a little over 30 percent of the vote in germany at that time that's quite frightening so we're reminded not to sleepwalk into this political situation and there are many examples where, where we are already doing that and we don't really quite know what the consequences of these things are going to be 
1984 is seen as sort of for those on the right as being a warning against giving the state too much power. But you could equally see it as the state not having enough power because the state is, you know, as a democratic state, the embodiment of the will of the people governed by the, enacted by the people. The, the problem we have now is that the state doesn't have enough power, so it can't protect us against the actions of um, large corporations who do not act in our interests. They don't care. All they care right. about is make, um, they don't care if, you know, society suffers, the citizens suffer as a result of it. When you read a book again, you look at, you, you pick it off the bookshelf and you look at the cover, at the, you know, from whenever it was that you read it and you suddenly think, wow, that book only cost pound fifty the first time I read it. And now books cost £12.50. They've uh, gone up a thousand percent in, in their price. I mean, it's, it's for all intents and purposes, Dan Brown's book, very popular and people read it. It is Pulp Fiction in a sense, but it's also quite an interesting uh, example of historical sort of, you, you do, there are things that you can kind of glean from it that would make you research other things. And I'm not bagging on it. It was just a very popular book. So popular that people had to give it away when it was turned into being used. So many books. Have you read Da Vinci Code? What are your thoughts on Da Vinci Code as a surface for 1984? Like, I love the idea of it kind of, you can almost see parts of the old text as you're reading 1984. I mean, it's like, it seems... They seem like a perfect marriage to me in my head. Yeah. In a way, you know, from making this project, I've realized they're a perfect marriage because they've got absolutely nothing to do with one another. Exactly. Um, one, is a, one is a, you know, a, a um, conspiracy thriller. You know, as a conspiracy, I mean, there are conspiracies like QAnon at the moment that are very damaging to our political system. But this is a fairly benign uh, conspiracy thriller. And it's uh, apparently Dan Brown still believes in this Knights Templar kind of conspiracy, but it has been quite comprehensively debunked as a book. You know, it is it's benign in the sense, and it's very, very been very, very popular, and many, many, many people have enjoyed it on holiday. Presumably, it's it's, it's a great holiday book. I mean, I don't I don't really read books like that. I'm I'd rather reread 1984. I perhaps or reread right. things that I don't quite have time for. For books like that but you know there are only two types of books that's just the books you like and the books you don't i suppose it could just as i could just as easy have used it, another book that was equally popular i'm sure there must be 50 shades of gray kicking around somewhere the reason why i'm using it is basically because has been born of the fact that it's so popular but it's interesting i reread the book got somebody else to reread it for me with the specific idea that we could find a quote that we could use at the beginning of 1984 and there was nothing that we could use nothing that reference re, you know that referenced any of the themes in 1984 which is interesting but maybe not surprising but then the reference point became what i've actually done with um the da vinci code that is the direct reference to what happens in 1984 the you know the ministry of truth Absolutely. and yeah everything something and creating something creating something completely different from it or creating yeah. something that's so different from it, it right it, you know the, the truth of um the da vinci code is completely different from the truth of 1984 um so that's kind of interesting but yeah. it's not work isn't a piece of literary criticism it's you know it's perhaps just an acknowledgement of the difficulty of of what happens to a book when it's no longer wanted and trying to do something positive with that. Yeah, I was definitely thinking of the idea of erasing text and, and kind of repurposing history or rewriting history was definitely part of the 1984 theme. But also I was thinking that 
just on a pop cultural level, the Da Vinci Code is so, so famous. So famous. And 1984 is so, so famous. But it's more famous as like a, as an emblematic term as opposed to people have actually read it. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, people say this is, this is quite Big Brother. This is very much or Orwellian, Orwellian, or 1984, and now specifically referencing that book. Um, but yeah, maybe this project is about uh, suggesting to people that they do reread it because it is, uh, you know, as relevant now as it was in the 1950s. Um, so yeah, I hope that I can sort of do that. I mean, we, as I speak now, we, we're just launching the book in Swansea. We've taken away all the books from this. Oxfam bookshop, and we've replaced them all with copies of 1984. So it's just 1984. It's like you will just read this book. You can only buy this book in the charity bookshop, which again is a bit big brother, you know, to do that. You, there is only one. <laughs> I love it. The launch of the book, the takeover is this weekend, but also people can buy the book eventually. Like if I live in uh, New York, I can buy it. Yes, you can buy it. It's uh, it's will be available online via my website. And also, um, yeah, the book is quite expensive, but yeah, that's just the way it has to be in order that okay. I can get money back. <laughs> uh, but we're also supporting Oxfam, the charity as well. So they, okay. they're very generous towards us in letting us use their shop. And um, obviously we've had to pay for that privilege and we're, we're giving them some money back through the sales of the book, which is nice. You know, it's great to be able to to help their work and also to think about what charity bookshop is. Yeah, what, yeah. What a positive thing the charity bookshop is. It's like rescuing a book. Yeah. But also another really interesting thing about the the process of making it is we collected all the ephemera that we found inside the books. So we've got a, a, a box full of ephemera, a lot of bookmarks, as you might expect, yeah. but lots of lots of articles in the newspaper about um, the Knights Templar and uh, and the reception of the book and lots of other things and loads of really strange random stuff. Oh my God, that's amazing. Things. So yeah, that that kind of anything that you find, you, you know, that is sort of discarded or, you know, um, deposited unintentionally or unknowingly in a charity bookshop is really fascinating. You, you know, during the pandemic uh, in my neighborhood, there was like a, a book exchange where like people would, you know, leave a book, take a book, leave a book, take a book. It was all free. And there was always a copy of Da Vinci Code or Angels and Demons every single time in this little like box that was like the neighborhood like exchange and no one ever took them. It just like, it was just, everyone had already read it or it was kind of a, a really special thing to see the books that people left behind for other people to read. And obviously there were certain books that were probably too cherished to give up, but it was a really great insight into people's intellectual psyche during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the pandemic was a time to rediscover reading. It's one of the one of the positive things amongst the many negative things that we perhaps a lot of us experienced. I read a Charles Dickens novel, which one did I read? Um, David Copperfield. Yeah. I, I realized I'd never read a Charles Dickens novel, which is, a, which is yeah, something that had to be addressed. I mean, that is like your English duty. I know. It's weird. It's like not never having heard of Shakespeare or something like that. I read Crime and Punishment during the pandemic because I had never read that before. And I was kind of like, I would never have read this unless the pandemic happened. That's a very dark book, isn't it? Well, I was in, it was, I was in a dark place, David. Yeah. Well, you, well, I, I pity you. I was in a much better place, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, it made me realize that I'm introvert and that's probably part of the reason that I enjoyed it. And also, you know, being a person who's able to make a living from 
staying at home is a, a very privileged position to be in. And I was in a, I was in, uh, you know, I live in, in out in the sticks, so it was kind of very compatible to that experience. Reconnecting with literature was a great thing. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a particular. I don't really. I feel sort of out of my depth discussing literature in, in a way, and um, because I'm not, you know, a, a scholar. I'm not. A, a, I went to art school, like you know, paint, draw. I'm not really. A, obviously, I use a lot of words in my work, but I don't really feel qualified to discuss things, to discuss English literature on a high level. I'm just a punter, you know. I'm just reading. Yeah, but I was just thinking about what you said about Orwell being in circles with Conrad and and H.G. Wells and them. You know, I'm, I know that authors still talk and there's still author circles, but I feel like that era of the Bloomsbury circle or the that that kind of um, authors as a group of people. I, I feel like I need to catch up on what's going on now in literature to to know if that's still happening in the. Uh, sort of rich nature that history tells us it happened before. Yeah, well, I'm sure it does. I mean, I'm right. sure, I think that probably the only difference is the correspondence between authors is is just all digital now. Right. Whereas it's written letters back in the day. And, you know, how do we, how do we, um, how do we retrieve all those correspondences once the authors are gone? I read a really lovely book by Lydia Davis. You ever heard of Lydia yeah, Davis? Yeah. Yeah. Sort of the principal exponent of what they call flash fiction. I, you know, I really enjoyed that book, having not read any of her stuff before. And uh, she was married to Paul Auster in the 1970s. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I don't know whether she still corresponds with Paul Auster. <laughs> uh, for, for, for our listeners, please read the New York trilogy. It's wonderful. You didn't go to like the coastal, Is I think it's, was it Scotland where Orwell wrote 1984, like in a cabin by himself? And it was Jura, which is in the, yeah. the Hebrides and Northwestern yeah. Islands. Yeah. Yeah, which is a, a funny place for a Londoner to find himself in the 1940s. I mean, it's remote now, but imagine what it was like then. Yeah, I've been there before. Yeah, I've been in that area. And um, I, I could see where you might want to write 1984 after spending a little bit of time there because it is dreary. It's has a bleak beauty but yeah bleak. A bleak beauty there you go um i'm curious if if you find that the the era that we live in the last couple of weeks has been quite ugh, just been a lot Do you, does it it actually feels like this project coming out this time kind of it works really well in terms of the geopolitical situation we're in as well i mean it, it yeah anything for a different news story right at the moment right. Yeah, I'm hoping that might work to our advantage. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's odd in a way that you know reconsidering 1984 is seen as being some kind of po- you know positive, light-hearted news. <laughs> but yeah, there's some. It's interesting maybe to reconsider books and the value of books and the value of charity bookshops, right. the value of changing books and and thinking about that and how you know books are a joy when you have a good book. It's such a wonderful thing to happen when you've got that great book that you can't wait to get home and start reading again. Is this, the, for all intents and purposes, like the end of your your year? This is like the project that kind of closes out David Shrigley's 2023? Wow, so I have to recoup a few funds before I do anything else, I think. Okay. Um, which I'm sure will be, it'll be fine, but um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's had a few financial implications in the short term. Um, but I'm sure those will be short-lived. But yes, I will be drawing, <laughs> drawing more pictures for the rest of the year, and okay. uh, maybe I shan't be publishing any more classic literature myself for a while. Um, but I will be doing a new a, an exhibition in New York, New York part of the world, in January, Anton Kern Gallery, a two-person show with my friend Tal R. 
Oh, yeah. We are in conversation with each other, as it were, through making drawings and paintings together. He's an old friend and I've known him for quite a long time. So, yeah, we're making an interesting two-person show and hopefully publishing a book of uh, some collaborative drawings that we've made, but we shall see. That's a good show. That's a really good combination. And I will say that you, what basically what you're going through is I am assuming that George Orwell was particularly broke when he uh, published 1984. So maybe you're just, you're just getting in the mode of feeling Orwellian. Maybe. Yeah. Orwellian. I mean, I, I haven't got any major health conditions that I know of. It's a shame that George Orwell didn't live to to become rich as a result of the, the success of that book. But obviously his widow, uh, Sonia Brownell, was that her name? Uh, she she uh, benefited from it. And um, yeah, apparently he wasn't a very good husband, so maybe she deserved it. <laughs> I mean, I, I actually just forgot that George Orwell was his pen name. Yes. Eric Blair was his real yeah, name. Eric Arthur name Blair. Yeah. It's named after the River Orwell in Suffolk. Wow. I didn't know that. Named himself after a river. Evan, let me ask you this. If yeah. you had tomb after a river, what river would it be? Ooh, what river would it be? That is a really good question. I mean, the Hudson River is a really good, I mean, it's a good, solid Hudson. It's got a really good, solid name. And it also got some art historical value to it. So I kind of like that. You can't really be the Thames or the Seine because it's just kind of weird. It doesn't really work. Tommy Thames. That doesn't <laughs> work. <laughs> Orinoco. How about Orinoco, Orinoco? What, is, what river is that? Where's South that? America, Orinoco. I believe it's in South America somewhere. Yeah. Um, Amazon's a good one. Well, Amazon's been overused. Yeah, you can't see that. But you can't be like Nile because that's a little like pompous. Yeah. What would you be? The, the rivers near where I currently reside, there's a few. I live between Brighton and East Devon. We've got the X in near where I live. X and the Axe. E-X-E and A-X-E. The X and the Axe and the Collie, C-O-L-Y. And in uh, near Brighton, we've got the river Adur, A-D-U-R. Yeah. Right, right. Adur. That'd be a good name, wouldn't it? David Adur. Yeah, David Adur sounds good. I mean, X-Axe actually sounds like a good band name. Yeah, The X. There's already a band called The X. Right. And that's probably yeah. a band called I feel really bad that I'm, I'm coming up with just The Hudson. It kind of sounds bad. That's rubbish. Come on. <laughs> I mean, other than that, I mean, there must be loads of rivers in the United States. Yeah, well, also just uh, I, the, the river closest to me where I grew up in Northern California would be the Russian River, and I don't really want to use Russian River. Oh, Evan, Russian. Yeah, it doesn't work. Sort of alliteration, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. Well, anyway, I'm going for the Adur. I think the Adur sounds good. I think Evan Hudson just sounds kind of, it sounds regal. I'm going to go with that. But what will be your first name? You can choose the first name as well. Oh, that's right. Um, I think it would have to be, I mean, can't be Henry Hudson. I think it, I, I think when in doubt, just go with Miles. Miles Hudson always sounds good. Sounds like a pulp, pulp uh, detective novelist. Miles Hudson. Okay. Okay. If that's what you want, that's fine. You know. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Miles Hudson and your work of dystopian fiction will be called. There's a great novel by Anthony Burgess called 1985. So I think I would just, it would be something like, you know, 1991. 2003. What happened in 2003? What, what's, what's... Well, it hasn't finished yet, has it? Lots of times. Oh, 2020. <laughs> horrible, horrible things to happen. Um, oh, well, let's go, let's go back to like medieval times, 1066 or, you know, or, you know, BC. 
Is ten uh, is ten sixty six William the Conqueror? Yeah, the, all that business. No, yeah, the William the Conqueror. Apparently, my family came to the United Kingdom along with William the Conqueror, or at least one branch of them did. We invaded and we stayed. So I've always wanted to know this: Do English folk do they do like the twenty three and Me and like because like Americans do it because we have no like because there's such a mixed mash of where we've all come from. Do you do you guys all do the twenty three and Me there? I don't know what that is. Okay, that's like the DNA test that tells you where your relatives came from. Well, yes. Funny you should mention that because my wife, Kim, she just did it. And um, her father was an African-American serviceman. Um, so she was speculating as to... Okay. She'd been told certain things about him, but she, she'd never never met him. Um, but then she did the Ancestry.com thing and, uh, and found out that she was mostly Scandinavian. Um yeah, so Norwegian, Danish, Swedish. She right. was highly excited about this. We just went to Copenhagen last week, and she was proudly telling everybody. She's claiming her homeland back. Not to the extent where she feels that it would be unreasonable to ask for a passport. <laughs> you know, a EU passport that we've, we've lost now because of our political folly in this country. So, yeah, she's uh, she's a proper Scandi, and she's... Um, talking using some scandinavian words using some norwegian words when she speaks to the dog uh, do you have any speculative ideas of maybe where your heritage is from if it's if not no no i will i will do it and then we can we can revisit this theme a good friend of mine um he had it in mind that he had some jewish heritage and he was very keen he's very happy about this and he was sort of Drink, drinking it in, enjoying it. So, you know, I'm going to do the ancestry.com and then I'll be back with my with my uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, he's sort of eating bagels and doing that. <laughs> and then it turned out he wasn't Jewish and he was really disappointed. <laughs> it's really zero Jewish heritage. So, yeah, I don't want to speculate because I might be disappointed. You know, I'd like to be Jewish or Scandinavian or... I don't know. Maybe I'm from Africa. I have a little bit of a one of those sketchy ones where my family, although ethnically Greek, uh, never lived in Greece. They lived in Turkey. And so when my mom did the test, it really was inconclusive. That's even more disappointing, isn't it? We got nothing. We don't know. We can't really claim Turkey, but we can't really claim Greece either. So we're not quite sure what to do. All the more reason to select a river and use that. I know. I could just, I have to really do some deep research on Greek tributaries when we get off this. Rivers in Greece. Do you have any final final things you'd like to say about Pulp Fiction, this incredible project? Besides, please buy it. Very welcome to buy it while stocks last. But you, we've also made a documentary film about the making of it because it was oh, so right, right. quite a protracted process. And quite a good story as well. So there's a half hour video that we're going to put up probably on Vimeo or a site like that. And you can you can watch it. And that will be coming in the next few weeks once we've edited it. And uh, you can see the story for yourself. And we had some very talented local filmmakers in Brighton uh, make this film. So yeah, go take a look and then you will know the story. I'm going to ask two more questions that I had in my notes. One is, what is your favorite book, David? My favorite book. Well, uh, having mentioned Joseph Conrad, I'm actually a big Joseph Conrad fan. A book that I really loved um, was Nostromo. I don't know if you've ever read that one. Oh, wow. It's a really interesting novel, um, really complicated uh, political novel. But yeah, it's a book that always stayed with me. Um, yeah, I, I find a new book every, you know, every few months that I really love and then forget about. I'm reading um, 
an Ian McEwan novel, the most recent one, which is called Lessons. What else have I read recently? My favourite novels, like I think Roots is a great novel. Roots is interesting. It's a really interesting novel. Um, just because when I grew up, there was a TV programme in the 1970s made of this, which wasn't didn't really do it justice. And I didn't really quite understand it at the time. But that's a great book to read. And it's so such an education, such a brilliant book about the experience of slavery, about the history of that and what that means. Um, that's a wonderful book. But yeah. And then just in terms of literature, um, I love William Burroughs, actually. I know it's sort of maybe it's a bit uncool to like William Burroughs, but that, yeah. had, that made, had a big influence on me. Um, Donald Barthel, have you read any of his books? American no. writer, of the short stories. He's sort of an exponent of what they call metafiction, like books that acknowledge their own creation, right. their own statements. But yeah, he was written some really strange. Um, novels but uh, he wrote a, a couple of collections of short stories which are fantastic like brilliant um, probably from 60s 70s I guess a brilliant writer Donald Barthel and then what is a book that you embarrassingly in the vein of not to say that Da Vinci Code's embarrassing but in the vein of something quite pulpy something quite uh you know, one of those books that's just a little bit that you don't want to admit that's on the bookshelf, but you've read it before and you quite, you quite enjoyed it. You know, if like you, re- you said you read Donald Trump's The Power of the Deal or whatever, I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> um, what's the guy? Who's the political commentator guy? Uh, oh, what's his name? His name's Fahrenheit 9-11. What was that called? What's that guy? Michael Moore. Michael Moore. Yeah. yeah. I've read a few of his books and I, I enjoyed them, but some of them are actually rethinking about some of the things he says. It's actually, yeah, I really don't, I don't agree with some of the things that he says, <laughs> um, particularly in relation to the uh, Middle East crisis in retrospect. It seems really quite inappropriate and ill-considered. Yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed about those for political reasons, not really necessarily for literary reasons. I mean, I think Michael Moore is a good guy, I have to say, and I think he's on the right side of political debate, but some of the things he comes out with are perhaps a little bit inconsiderate, shall we say. I'm probably now going to either read 1984 or read Da Vinci Code. I'm not sure which one I'm going to do first. Well, yeah, read both. It's like when people went to see Barbie and Oppenheimer in the double header. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I've seen both of them, but not at the same time. I think actually that'd be a really great, that's a really good, I thought that was one of the greatest matchings of films ever, even though I didn't see either yet. I just thought that like in in the concept of it was like, this is where the world is at. Perhaps, perhaps. But I think 1984 and The Da Vinci Code is a similar, you know. It very much is, yeah. Like a Venn diagram with no intercease kind of thing. Thank you for finding a use for the Dan Brown books that have been given into charity shops and but but more more importantly, uh, I think it's really great that you this idea of um, talking about charity shops, talking about literature, and just reminding people that the the beauty of paper and books is that's I think it's a really wonderful project. Thank you, thank you, Aaron.